Bienvenidos to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza, produced by Julieta Kushnir, Vanessa Bohm, and Nina Serrano, with News Sin Fronteras by Vilma V. Today's program includes our direct report from Brazil on the World Cup. We'll be hearing about the upcoming MexIAM four-day event, Live It to Believe It, showcasing the best performances and ideas from Mexico. We'll also feature a conversation with Oaxacan farm workers and the poetry of Harold Teresón. But first, we begin with the news with Vilma V. Stay tuned. This is Vilma V. with Noticias Sin Fronteras, news headlines without borders from America Latina for the week ending July 6th. Guatemala. A 6.9 magnitude earthquake struck the border between Guatemala and Mexico yesterday, killing at least four people. The earthquake downed power lines, damaged dozens of buildings, and triggered landslides that blocked roads. The president of Guatemala, Otto Perez Molina, stated, quote, With the reports we have so far, we can say this quake has caused moderate damage. It's not light damage, end quote. The earthquake was also felt in El Salvador. Ecuador. The government of Ecuador, led by President Rafael Correa, has won the right to sue in U.S. federal court two fugitive brothers, Roberto and William Isaias, who stand accused of embezzling millions of dollars from a bank they owned in Ecuador. The Isaias brothers, who currently live in Coral Gables, Florida, were the former owners of Filambanco in Ecuador. They were convicted by the Ecuadorian government of embezzling over $500 million from that bank. The U.S. court ruled that the government of Ecuador did not violate international law when it sought to seize properties in Florida in order to recover the stolen funds. Mexico. The Mexican Congress is set to pass long-delayed legislation aimed at overhauling its television and telephone markets. The legislative reforms seek to limit the power of media mogul and multi-billionaire Carlos Slim, as well as the broadcasting company Televisa. Slim's company, America Mobile, controls about 70% of Mexico's mobile market, while Televisa, the world's biggest provider of Spanish-language content, controls over 60% of the Mexican TV market. Some legislators and media activists are concerned that both companies could derail the new rules. A senator from the Mexican PAN party, Francisco Burquez, stated, quote, With the power these monopolies have, they've taken advantage of every loophole to mount legal defenses, end quote. Also in Mexico, activist poet and leader of the movement for peace with justice and dignity, Javier Cecilia, has called on organizations, intellectuals, and fellow activists to join him in demanding the release of José Manuel Mireles. Mireles is a prominent leader of one of Michoacán's autodefensas, self-defense groups who have organized to protect themselves and their families against the drug gangs because they feel the government does not protect them. Mireles, who is a medical doctor, was arrested late last month on weapons charges. Activist poet Cecilia accuses the Mexican government of siding with the drug traffickers, stating the only thing the government seeks is to, quote, harmonize and again control the drug trafficking networks, end quote. Cecilia also called for the removal of Alfredo Castillo, the federal commissioner of peace and development in Michoacán, stating that he had betrayed the citizens of that state. Panama. Juan Carlos Varela was sworn in as president of Panama last Tuesday and pledged in his inaugural speech to fight corruption and impunity in that country. Varela stated, quote, starting today, Nobody is above the law. Corruption will not be tolerated in our government, end quote. The inauguration ceremony was attended by numerous dignitaries, including six presidents from Latin America and U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry. One of Varela's first acts in office was the signing of a decree which froze the price of 22 basic food staples. Oh, yeah. 
Latino Despertando a Panama This has been a summary of some of the latest news headlines from America Latina. I'm Vilma V for Noticias Sin Fronteras and La Raza Chronicles. If you have a news item that you would like to share or have us track, email us at larasachronicles at kpfa.org. its final week. There are only a few games left and we'll know who the champion is on Sunday. But that does not mean that we're having slow news days here in Brazil. The Seleção star player Neymar is out of the tournament. He was injured during the match Brazil played against Colombia during the quarterfinals. Camilo Zuniga, a midfielder on the Cafetero side, hit Neymar's lower back with the knee and fractured a vertebra. Doctors expect Neymar to be fully recovered in at least four weeks. That means he is out of the Copa. Brazilians are very disappointed that their main star, the one everyone hoped would shine the brightest, is going to miss the semifinal against Germany. Sports commentators were hoping Zuniga would receive a punishment similar in harshness to the one given to Uruguay's Luis Suarez, who bit an Italian player during a match and was banned from the Copa and football for four months. But FIFA refused to penalize the Colombian player. Brazilians, however, have already done this through social media. Hundreds of comments on Zuniga's profile pages on several social platforms were flooded with offensive words. His mother, daughter, and even his dog were insulted. A few threats were also made. Zuniga started erasing his pictures to try to stop the Brazilian rage. Meanwhile, Neymar left the Brazilian headquarters in Teresópolis and went to Guarujá to rest and start his recovery. On Monday, it was FIFA's image that got injured. The Rio police arrested Raymond Willen, director of Match, the company associated with FIFA that manages tickets to the World Cup. He is accused of being the leader of a corruption scheme to sell overpriced tickets on the black market. Among Match's stockholders is Philip Blotter, FIFA's president Joseph Blotter's nephew. So far, 11 people have been identified and arrested for participating in the scheme. Last Thursday, an unfinished overpass fell in Belo Horizonte and two people were killed. 23 were injured and a major avenue in the capital of Minas Gerais state is still closed. The construction is part of a bus system and the contractor is being accused of negligence. The public prosecution will investigate the accident. The demolition of what is left of the overpass started on Monday. Today, Brazil played in Mineirão Stadium in Belo Horizonte. City Hall decreed a holiday to avoid traffic chaos in the city, where 2.5 million live. On Sunday, Maracanã Stadium will host the final. Germany, Holland and Argentina are the teams that have survived the last week of the tournament. But judging from the last few weeks, there will be a lot more to report until the end of the Copa. Inside and outside the field. For KPFA's La Raza Chronicles, this is Diogo Antonio Rodriguez from Sao Paulo, Brazil. 
Next, we'll feature a song by Natalia Laforcade. She'll be playing at the upcoming Mexican I Am Festival in San Francisco. We'll be featuring her music throughout the program, so listen and enjoy. just heard a song by Natalia Laforcade. She'll be playing at the upcoming Mexiam Festival in San Francisco.
Whether news coverage is about immigration reform or the growing food movement, it is rare that we hear more than just statistics and numbers about the people who risk their lives to come to the U.S. and work in the fields, one of the most dangerous occupations in existence. The stories of immigrants in general are often excluded, but even more so are the voices of the many indigenous Mexicans who come to the U.S. One out of every six farm workers in California and in the U.S. is of indigenous origins. On today's program, I have two guests who have dedicated their lives to shining a spotlight on the many challenges faced by indigenous farm workers and are also working to support the organizing happening to improve the health and safety for these families. I have in studios Seth Holmes, who is an anthropologist and physician and and also professor here at Berkeley. And we're going to talk about his latest book, Fresh Fruit, Broken Bodies, Migrant Farm Workers in the United States, which which draws on 18 months of full-time participant observation where he worked with undocumented indigenous Mexicans in the U.S. and also went to Mexico and did field research for several years. And this field research included picking berries in Washington State, pruning vineyards in California, harvesting corn in the mountain of Oaxaca, and accompanying migrant laborers on clinic visits and trekking across the border desert into Arizona. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Julieta. I'm also very lucky to have on the line with us Leoncillo Vasquez Santos, who is the executive director of the Binational Center for the Development of Oaxacan Indigenous Communities. He's also Mistec. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. So let's start off, oftentimes the conversation, in your book, Seth, that you move far beyond reading articles and consuming data around migration. You connected with farm workers and actually experienced their work and visited villages in Mexico that where many of the residents have left. Um, movement with, between the U.S. and Mexico is not new. You know, with the passage of NAFTA and drops in corn prices, we've seen an increase in rural indigenous Mexicanos leaving Mexico and coming to the United States. It, let's get a sense of what life is like in rural Mexico and in the places that you visited. Can you talk to us and describe what does economic survival look like in rural Mexico? Good question, Julieta. So there are a couple different answers. The villages that I lived in in the tricky zone of La Mixteca in Oaxaca up in the mountains on one hand were beautiful. They're high up in the mountains. They're often called cloud regions where the clouds are blowing through. They have rivers and trees and views. At the same time, since the passage of the North American Free Trade Agreement in 1994, which disallowed relatively poor countries from having tariffs on goods from other countries to protect their citizens, but allowed relatively wealthy countries to have inverse tariffs that we call subsidies, the United States has increased subsidies on corn by over 300%, which means that U.S. grown corn, usually from relatively consolidated corporate agriculture, has been underselling the corn grown by native Mexicans in Oaxaca itself, so that a lot of the people I know, a lot of the tricky people who I lived with, couldn't survive anymore living in their hometowns, growing corn and doing the kinds of work that they've been doing on their own family farms, and instead they had to risk their lives in certain ways crossing the border to work on our farms in the U.S. doing different kinds of wage labor. Leoncillo Vasquez Santos, you're the executive director of the Binational Center for the Development of Oaxacan Indigenous Communities. And along with working closely with the members of your organization, you all have also produced a report recently really looking at the reasons why people come to the U.S. and also looking at what could be done to improve immigration policy. So tell us, fill in any other parts of the story. What do people need to know when they think about immigration? They oftentimes don't ask the question, why do people come? What can you tell us about life 
in rural Mexico that is a driving driving people to start a new life and to extend their life here to here in the U.S. Well, uh, first of all, we need to know that indigenous communities are the newest immigrants to the United States, and uh, so being from the indigenous communities, many people. Uh, if not the majority in the United States are not aware of this population. And, and being so, we don't have much studies about who we are, why we speak another language, even though we are living in Mexico, the, the culture uh, of our community, the language, uh, the, the, our native language. Basically, many people are unaware of this. So we started to work and introduce report documents so people can start getting information about our community. So uh, two years ago, we started to work on this to basically go and talk to family members and really know about their everyday life, the challenges that they, they face and how they come up with solutions in order to continue living here, working here, uh, even though they don't have legal documents and support their families, not only those that are living with them here, but also save money and send back to Mexico because those who stayed in Mexico continue depending of those of us who have migrated. So basically, that's one of the work that we're doing in addition to provide direct services for the immediate needs of the families. Uh, but not only that, but also find ways to convince them and to talk to them that it is important that they learn how to navigate the system, how to know how the social, political, education, health system works in this country and how they can get involved to change the challenges that they face so they can live a little bit better. That's the voice of Leoncio Vasquez Santos. He's the executive director of the Binational Center for the Development of Oaxacan Indigenous Communities. So something that, that you've touched on, Leoncio, that is often missing from this picture is people oftentimes think of migration. They think people leave their home, they come here, they start their lives, that old life is over and, you know, there's this disconnect. So I'm here with Seth Holmes. He's come in studio to talk to us about his new book, Fresh Fruit, Broken Bodies, which really is a super in-depth, very, very beautiful, very compassionate, look at the uh, migrant farm worker experience in the United States, particularly focusing on the the lives of a few people that you became very close to that are of indigenous Mexican origin. So th this idea of separation, reading your book, it just it was not a full picture. I, and also in the work that the Binational Center does, the uh, Binational Center for Development of Oaxacan Indigenous Communities, you can see the civic responsibilities in Mexico that many um, migrants feel and the back and forth that often happens. Can you talk to us first about that, Seth? And then I'd love to hear from you, Leoncino, about that. I can say the research that I did, the field work started in Washington State, living on a labor camp, picking strawberries, going to clinics whenever anyone got sick, moving to the Central Valley of California after the strawberry and blueberry season. We were first homeless living out of our cars until we found uh, an apartment that would rent to people who don't have credit histories and bank accounts and lived there through most of the winter. Then I went with a group of that same extended family to their home village in the mountains of Oaxaca, lived in a house that was being built slowly of concrete as family members from Washington and California were sending money, and then crossed the border again with 10 of the young men from the village. Um, we were apprehended by the Border Patrol and put in Border Patrol jail. They were deported back to Mexico, and I was released with a fine for not going through customs. And then I went back to California and back to Washington again for another season. And in a sense, each of those places 
was very strongly linked to the other places. One of the young men who I got to know very well in Washington and California would talk with his family in Oaxaca regularly over the phone because he wanted to propose to a certain other girl from Oaxaca who was up in Washington State. And so there were discussions. There was very much input on both sides. And then the people who came down to uh, Oaxaca or stayed in Oaxaca, their houses were being built partially based on funding from family members up in the United States. So there's a sense in which this is much more an extended community than uh, migration from one place to another and then settling and changing to fit that place. A lot of the people that I knew and still know and keep in touch with would prefer, if they could, to stay in Oaxaca on their own family farms, farming with their relatives, but largely because of things like the North American Free Trade Agreement, economics and politics, they haven't, they can't, they haven't been able to. Almost every family I know in Oaxaca has at least one family member in the United States working and sending money back. But that's not something that they feel like they chose freely. That's something that a lot of them explain as that's the only option that they had in order for their family to survive. Someone needed to go to the U.S. There is this strong history. And actually, I'm a little bit bummed that Leoncio Vasquez isn't here in studio because he and I met, I think, in 2004 at a Frente Indígena Oaxaqueño Binacional meeting in Fresno, I believe. And there's been a long history both with the Binational Center that he now is executive director of and the Frente Indígena Oaxaqueño of this binational work of people in the United States supporting their home communities and people back in their home communities staying in touch with and supporting the people in the United States. There's a strong kind of community support model with a lot of people from Oaxaca. That's the voice of Seth Holmes. He is a professor at UC Berkeley. He's a cultural and med medical anthropologist, physician, and author of Fresh Fruit, Broken Bodies, Migrant Farm Workers in the United States. Lansinga Vasquez Santos, can you fill in for us? That's, you know, so Seth said that your organization is very closely working on that civic engagement both here in the U.S. but also in Mexico. Can you talk to us about the transnational lives that people lead in terms of celebrations and financial connections and all the many ways that people stay connected to their home? Yes, it is important to understand in what Seth uh, says that many people come to the United States or to what they say America to search for the American dream. For the indigenous people and migrants, basically from Mexico and probably from other countries uh, in Latin America, Southern America, it is basically we are forced out of our communities. And many people don't understand what, what are those means or what, what do they mean. So, uh, and they think, oh, if, if you come to the United States, you should prepare yourself and know the language and know the history and know how to get around and because that's what they do when they come to the United States. And it is very important to take into account that any, any economic policies that the U.S. deal with Mexico in this case or any other countries uh, such as NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, CAFTA, the Central American Trade Agreement, it's very important to understand that these huge economic policies have to deal directly with our community. We see in the uh, mainstream media that, uh, oh, these deals are great for the countries of Mexico and the U.S. and Canada in this instance, but they don't really take into account how this policy is designed to force the poorest of the poor out of their community so they can take advantage of them here 
without protecting their providing them job, but without protecting their basic rights, without taking into account a a fair wage for them and, and giving them the benefit that they deserve. If other people were working here who are U.S. citizens or even legal permanent residents, they request, they uh, demand that these, uh, that all the rights that they have should be or should be protected. But in the case of the indigenous people and especially those without documents, they don't know, they don't have the, that, those rights. And many people don't understand that. They just blame the immigrants. Why are they here and they're taking our jobs away and they should go back because they are illegal and all these name callings that uh, people started to uh, make because they see the huge amount of immigrants that act different, differently from what they have seen before. But it is very important that, that every U.S. citizen should be aware of this. And if they don't want any more immigrants, why not support each other? Support this community so we can have jobs in our community and just uh, say, say, we don't want to come to the United States. We will prefer to stay in our community with our family members, uh, continue the traditions that we have, continue speaking our language and not having the risk that our youth now, they don't speak our language. They get into other behaviors that not necessarily go along with our traditions, and that's what we are losing. And many people are not aware of that, and they don't appreciate it. So why not find a way to support uh, all the millions that, uh, that, that they spend on wars and, and supporting this transnational corporation, why not support the communities to build community projects and have uh, ways for them to stay at home? And just going a little bit about the new concept that we are working on, the Frente Indígena de Organizaciones Binacionales and the Binational Center, is basically to find a way, an alternative, to stay home and not migrate anymore. And this is basically what we're working with our community members, organizing them, so talking to them, giving them information about all this complex situation that we are involved in and come up with good ways to support our families, but also to find ways to stay home and not migrate anymore. Leoncio, this is Seth. I wanted to kind of repeat and reinforce what you said. I think that from my field work, um, what you said is so important that a lot of people I know, indigenous native Mexicans from Oaxaca, come to the U.S. feeling like they're forced to come, not coming out of a choice. And there's a sense in which all the political debates around immigration reform imagine this large group of people from south of the border who want to come across the border and settle here and have the American dream and have a white picket fence and settle into... Um, U.S. English-speaking life. It, through my research with all the people I got to know, Abelino, Marcelina, Crescencio, Bernardo, in who I write about in the book, most of them are not coming here, like you said, to have the American dream to settle. Most of them would rather be working on their family farms in their home communities. And I would like to encourage Congress in the discussions of the comprehensive immigration reform not just to discuss things like the sealing of the border, or even legalization, which is very important, but also things like renegotiating NAFTA, in a sense, so that people who don't want to come here could stay home if they 
choose. That would be another way to reform immigration, to allow more people like a lot of indigenous native Mexicans in Oaxaca to have jobs, to have possibilities back home. And then in terms of what listeners can do beyond talking with their Congress people about these ideas, also their two unions that support farm workers, the United Farm Workers, well actually there are many more, but on the West Coast, United Farm Workers, UFW.org, there's PECUN, which is Piñeros y Campesinos Unidos, PCUN.org, which has many indigenous members, mostly in the Pacific Northwest. There's FIOB, which Leoncio and I both mentioned, FIOB.org, and then there's Leoncio's organization, which I believe is CBDIO.org. Thank you, Leoncio. So, touch on a really important point, which is often excluded. Both of you are underlining the fact that there's there's a push. People are being pushed out of their homes, and they are not leaving out of choice and out of uh, out of a strong desire to come to the U.S. They're being forced to. So now let's talk about what that crossing and what that difficult journey is all about. So, Seth Holmes, you actually crossed with um, with some of the the people that you became friends with and worked with uh, in terms of your field research for this book, Fresh Fruit, Broken Bodies, Migrant Farm Workers in the United States. So tell us about your experience crossing the border. And this is something that obviously it's, a, it's an experience many, many of us have had. Um, but tell us about your experience. So in 2003 and 2004, I did the 18 months of full-time field work. And one of the events that I took part in was along with 10 young tricky men from Oaxaca. We crossed the border. We left their village went to a nearby town, got on a bus, rode the bus for three days up to the border town that we left from um, without stopping and stayed overnight in the border town, met with a coyote, a border crossing guide, trekked through the border for um, most of essentially all night overnight. Because we didn't want to be caught, we, you don't use flashlights, which means that you bump into cacti and get cactus spines in your shins. You hear rattlesnakes from time to time. Um, several of us brought uh, slingshots against rattlesnakes. We rubbed garlic cloves on our shoes to keep the rattlesnakes away. Every once in a while, we would hear a car or see lights off in the distance, and we didn't know if that car or those other people were related to people trying to cross the border themselves, whether they were border vigilante people from the United States who might um, have violent ideas about how to interact with us, or whether they might be robbers who knew that each of us had thousands of dollars in cash in order to pay the crossing fees, or if it would be the border patrol who would put us in jail and then we would have to start the trek over again. So there were a lot of ways that it was terrifying, scary, difficult. We went through at least a dozen barbed wire fences and wooden fences that we had to kind of climb through. And the thing that was especially interesting to me, though, was the way that it's talked about in the U.S. media in terms of it's a choice, including Doris Meisner, who is the former head of the Border Patrol, said something very similar to these people are choosing to take on unnecessary risks. But none of the people who are going through this horrifying experience where people do die every year increasingly, according to research that was published by the University of Arizona this summer, over the last 20 years, the number of deaths in the border has gone up, even though the number of people crossing overall has gone down. But these people weren't experiencing it as a choice. They never spoke of it as a choice. They always spoke of it as the only option for them. 
So one of the things I try to do in the book is tell the story of individual people and these experiences in detail so that the discussions about immigration reform in the media and in politics that often make large blanket statements that Leoncio kind of alluded to in terms of these people don't deserve this or these people are draining our economy. If we get to know the lives of individual migrants, we actually learn that those things often aren't true. That's the voice of Seth Holmes. He's referring to his most recent book, and that book really details this in great length and tells a very complete story. And as he said, it tells a human story that's often missing. The book is called Fresh Fruit, Broken Bodies, Migrant Farm Workers in the United States. Leoncio Vatri Santos, so as the executive director of the Binational Center for the Development of Oaxacan Indigenous Communities, you've heard many, many crossing stories. You've heard probably many horror stories. What sense do you have of how this has changed in the years? There used to be a point where it was more fluid wasn't as militarized the border and as Seth mentioned deaths have gone up even though crossing has gone down what are you hearing from people in terms of how things have changed right so basically let me let me just go back to my village a village of about 2,000 people but about 400 are left in in the village and the rest of are in the United States in the 1990s decade every year I was seeing new face of people from my village they will come and work for about two, three months and probably the most a year, two years, but they will always go back to, to the village because they have family members there. Again, their objective or the goal is not to come here and stay here, settle here uh, permanently. Just come, get some work, save some money, and go back home. After the enforcement and in the, in the border got stronger, more complex, I will see that people will not go back. And I know people that have not gone back for 10 years, 15 years because of the tight control at the border and because of the risk and the high price that they have to pay in order to get back to the U.S. if they want to, to come back. So I have seen instances where close family members have died back in the village, and those without documents even thought they want to be there because that's the moral responsibility to stay with family members when this type of events happen. They don't go back. They don't go back because they don't have that chance. And even if they go, they will have to come back and they risk their own life in order to be able to cross the border. So very complex situations are happening in our community where it is a host town now, the Pueblo de Fantasma, because we don't see that many people. We just see the elderly uh, women with uh, small children, but the rest of us are in the United States. So that Leoncio Vasquez Santos has brought us to the point of, so people take these risks, many die, many also experience extreme trauma and pain and, and have physical consequences of their experience crossing the border. So now let's talk about life once folks are in the U.S. and if they do decide or if they do end up going into agricultural work. A recent report by UC Davis researchers has found that more than 75% of injuries and illnesses among U.S. agricultural workers are not reported. So that gives us a sense of just the magnitude of, of what people are going through in terms of this very, very physical, demanding work. So Seth, during your work for this book, you spent some time picking berries and pruning. Can you tell us about your experience? Can you tell us about the health impacts and what agricultural work did for your did on your did to your body? Sure. So in Washington State, I lived in a labor camp on a berry farm, picked strawberries one or two days a week during strawberry season, and then blueberries after that, and then pruned in Central California. I pruned vineyards. 
And in Washington State, um, one of the days when I was writing field notes about what the experience was like, I wrote, it feels like pure torture. Um, and I think part of that is in Washington State, um, there aren't very many legal um, labor laws around agricultural workers. Um, a lot of labor laws in the U.S. don't apply to agricult agricultural workers. And um, that's true in most states, but there are certain states like California have um, enacted certain labor laws that other states haven't. So in Washington state, we worked seven days a week. We started before the sun came up, usually five or five thirty in the morning, something like that. And then we would work until the end of the day, whenever the field was picked. Sometimes that would be noon. Other times that would be 5 p.m. or something. And it would depend somewhat on how many workers there were, how big the field was, um, how many strawberries there were, etc. But in order to be able to pick the minimum weight each day, and if you didn't pick the minimum weight, you were fired, and you would usually get a second chance. And if you couldn't pick the minimum a second time, you would be fired, and then you'd have to, you and your family would have to move out of the labor camp because you were no longer laborers. So it was a very big disruption to your life. Um, so we all had a fair amount of stress about picking the minimum weight. And in order to pick the minimum weight, you had to bend over on both knees as far as you could and learn the skills of picking strawberries simultaneously with each hand without really being able to see them under the leaves. So you would reach under the leaves and try to pop off the the stem off of each berry and put them in as fast as you could into your buckets and then take them to be weighed by the um, Anglo-American teenagers who would weigh them. And then at the end of the day, you'd hope you met the minimum weight or maybe even more and get paid a little bit more. Um, I would try different ways of picking, you know, having one knee down and one knee up or standing up and being bent over other things that would feel better. But I was always much slower in those positions. So ironically, it felt like in order for me to make the minimum weight and if I were, if this job were my way to survive, which luckily for me it wasn't, and that's something I try to bring out in the book is how my experiences were different from the people I was living with. Um, if that were the way I had to survive, ironically, I would have to do the thing that was the most painful on my body in order to be able to keep up. Coming up next, we'll feature a song by Natalia Laforcade. She'll be playing at the upcoming Mexican I Am Festival in San Francisco. Poniendo la mano en el corazón, quisiera decirte al compasión son que tú eres mi vida y no quiero a nadie más que a ti. Poniendo la mano en el corazón, quisiera Cielo 
el aire, que respiro el aire, que respiras tú. No tienes remedio, no tienes remedio, no tienes remedio, eres mi gran amor. Amor de mis amores, sangre de mi alma, regálame las flores de la esperanza. is a conversation between myself, Nina Serrano, and the poet-educator, Harold Teresón. What other poem do you have? Um, so I, I'm actually an educator. I teach poetry to the youth of San Francisco, and I've been doing it for a while, maybe four or five years. And this poem is actually based on one of the students who I taught a while ago, and she was a poet. I left to live in San Francisco, and when I went back, I realized she no longer called herself a poet. She had dismissed all identity of being a poet, which, think about it now, is kind of the way I see all the students. I mean, even though the poem was based on her, it's really a poem about all my students after I stopped teaching them in the classroom. And it's called Ashley La Poeta. A Ashley La Poeta no le gusta la poesía. Si le preguntas por qué, te dirá, no offense, but poetry is boring. Si le dices a Ashley La Poeta que te escriba un poema, te dirá, I'd rather listen to fingernails screeching down a chalkboard than write a poem. I'd rather solve a million multiplication problems than write a poem. I'd rather smell my cousin's smelly sock while he still has it on than write a poem. I'd rather not eat cheese pupusas with curtido for over a month than write a poem. 
Pero si le preguntas a Ashley, la poeta, que te cuente sobre su familia, se convertirá en un quetzal con alas de arco iris, sus ojos crecerán más grandes que la luna, Júpiter, el sol o el universo inmenso, y te cantará de su hermanita tan bonita y dulce como una fresa pequeñita, y te cantará de su hermana mayor y sus bailes de princesa entre las estrellas, y te, te cantará de su papá el disc jockey y sus poderes musicales hechos en vinilo de caramelo, y te cantará de su mamá tan cariñosa como su almohada y cobija favorita. Y si le dices a Ashley la poeta que te ha contado un poema sobre su familia, te dirá, No offense, but that wasn't a poem, because poems are boring. Y te lo dirá con una sonrisa más grande que un gigante guineo amarillo. So, let's talk for a minute about your teaching. How has your teaching informed your own poetry? When I first started writing, I wasn't aware or keen on how to use a lot of figurative language. I think um, it was more, I would see it on the page and I would try it out. I knew what the terms are called, the simile and hyperbole and all stuff. But in needing to clarify all these terms to students and breaking it down to the basics, you do get a different understanding as, as an educator and then and how to use them and see how that actually improves your or certains your writing for the better. But one of the biggest things is just seeing how they see the world and how sometimes you have to take that risk of imagination. Where often they're strapped by the idea that what they say is not important enough. And I think watching them take those risks and telling their own stories, and often they're very painful stories, I take in that from them. If I want them to follow me, I have to role model and telling our stories. It's, it's very important for us to do so. Well, you certainly are mastering that for yourself. I, I try. <laughs> I do my best. Thank you so much, Harold Terrison, and thank you so much for sharing all of your wonderful and inspiring poems. Thank you for inviting me. It was a pleasure and an honor to be here today. Well, the pleasure was mine. Muchas gracias. Igualmente.
camino Vende caro tu amor Bienvenidos and welcome to the La Raza Calendar. On Thursday, June 10th, La Boheme presents Beats Not Borders with Las Cafeteras, Las Bamberas de la Bahia, La Palenga DJs, and Art by Culture Strike. That's Thursday, July 10th at the New Parish, 579 18th Street in Oakland at 9 p.m. Also on July 10th at 7.30 p.m., there'll be a celebration of Pablo Neruda's birthday with poetry and music at the Red Poppy Art House. The fun includes scenes from Mark Eisner's documentary, Neruda, The Poet's Calling, live music by Kerehema combining Andean indigenous instrumentation and jazz, live poetry by Adrian Arias, Jennifer Baroni, Barbara Paschke, Michael War, and others. Red Poppy Art House is at the corner of 23rd and Folsom Streets in San Francisco. Saturday, July 12th at 7 p.m., the World Poetry Movement 2014 and Laborfest 2014 present People's Voices for a Planet Free of War at the Unitarian Universalist Church at 1187 Geary Street at Franklin in San Francisco, featuring Poet Laureate Emeritus Jack Hirschman and KPFA's own people, Nina Serrano of La Raza Chronicles, folk musician Carol Denny of the Witties, and Steve Zeltzer of Work Week Radio. Also poets Adrian Arias, Yolanda Katzalco, Manaz Badehan, all reading and songs by Karen Melanda Magoon. On Saturday, July 26th, from 10 to 1 p.m., Luna's Press and Bookstore is holding a workshop for writers called Cooking Poems for writers who'd like to write children's books. Prize-winning bilingual author Jorge Argueta will be sharing ideas, techniques, and tools that help you develop your own story into a children's story, plus publishing tips. That's July 26th at Luna's Press and Bookstore, 
1790 Mission Street in San Francisco. For more information, visit jorgeargueta.com, jorgeargueta.com. to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. Gracias por escucharnos. Thanks for listening. Remember to like us on Facebook and download or listen to our program on soundcloud.com backslash La Raza Chronicles. See you again next Tuesday at 7 p.m. Hasta la próxima. Hasta la próxima.